You're listening to ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Heart Matters, where leading cardiology experts explore the latest trends, technologies, and clinical developments in cardiology practice. Your host for Heart Matters is Dr. Alfred Beauvais, president of the American College of Cardiology. Although fibromuscular dysplasia is considered rare by many clinicians, the condition may in fact affect 3 to 5% of the general patient population in the United States. What are some of the complications of fibromuscular dysplasia, and when should physicians screen for this condition? Our guest today is Dr. Jeffrey Olin, Professor of Medicine and Cardiology at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine and Director of the Vascular Medicine and the Zena and Michael Wiener Cardiovascular Institute and the Marie Josie and Henry Kravitz Center for Cardiovascular Health at the Mount Sinai Medical Center in New York City. Welcome, Dr. Olin. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I think it would be worth starting with a little bit of a definition of fibromuscular dysplasia because we heard about it sometime in our past careers in medicine, but it fades away because of its low incidence. So tell us a little bit about what it is, who gets it, and what effects might occur from this disorder. Okay. Well, I think one of the reasons why it fades away is that there's been very little written about it or very little new information in the last 30 or 40 years, but that's all changing now. So fibromuscular dysplasia is a condition that affects the arteries, usually the medium-sized arteries. It rarely affects large arteries like the aorta, but it can affect any artery in the body, the most common being the renal arteries in which it causes high blood pressure, the second most common, the carotid arteries. So it occurs in about a 9-to-1 ratio, women to men. We don't really know why that is. And the most common manifestations of it in the past have been high blood pressure in young people. So this should be the top of the list if someone develops high blood pressure under the age of 35. And then TIA or stroke in young individuals. I gather that there are some other arterial locations where this can occur as well. For example, in the arteries that supply the GI tract. That's true. It really can occur in any artery in the body. It rarely occurs intracranially, but it can occur in the coronary arteries. And It's not very common in the coronary arteries, but every year you hear about several individuals who have a sudden death or who have unstable angina due to fibromuscular dysplasia of the coronary arteries. It can occur in the peripheral arteries and produce claudication. So really, any artery in the body can be involved other than the aorta. Besides hypertension, I think you've mentioned a number of the complications of fibromuscular dysplasia. What do you think we might think of as a cause for this disorder? Is there any new information that's providing some insight into who might be more susceptible, for example? Well, that's where there's been very little information that's come forth. There's no clue on what the underlying cause of this condition is. Because it affects women about a 9 to 1 ratio, people have thought that hormones in some way play a role. I think that as more and more genetic studies are done on this condition, you're going to see that genetics play a role in this. There's about a 10 to 12% familial incidence of fibromuscular dysplasia. That's probably an underestimation since most families are not checked. So we probably underestimate how common that really is. Okay, so it sounds to me like if the incidence in the whole population is 3 to 5%, and in families it's double that, there must be some at least partial inherited tendency for this disorder. Uh, so if we knew a patient had fibromuscular dysplasia, I guess we would at least go back and mention it to the family, do maybe some screening in some family members that might have a possible complication. But overall, 
If you're seeing the average patient, let's say with hypertension, what do you do to decide if there is fibromuscular dysplasia in the renal artery, for example? Well, I think it depends where you're located. What we do at our center is a duplex ultrasound. We have a very large experience with uh, ultrasound of the renal arteries in general and fibromuscular dysplasia in particular. And what you would see there is velocity shifts on ultrasound in the mid and distal renal artery along with a lot of turbulence. If you don't have that available or you don't think the quality of the renal artery ultrasound is particularly good at your institution, then the next step would be to go to a CT angiogram. And I say that over an MR angiogram because CT has a little better resolution and MR can both have false positive and false negatives in the smaller arteries. So we like to go with CT angiography. Okay, and uh, I guess, you know, we're cardiologists and we walk around with a stethoscope in our pocket. I mean, what would you do on a physical exam to try to detect this? That's a very good point because a lot of patients that I see with fibromuscular dysplasia have evidence of it on a physical exam. So you would want to listen to the abdomen for bruise, and if you want to listen to the renal arteries, you listen high in the epigastrum, and that is not specific for renal arteries, but that's about where the renal arteries take off along with the SMA and the celiac. And then you want to listen over the carotid arteries high at the angle of the jaw because many of these patients have a high-pitched kind of swishing sound that you would hear with your stethoscope. So I've now seen about 10 patients who have come to me for a totally different reason. For example, they may have been referred because of a swollen leg. On physical exam, we identify a brewery and ultimately they end up having fibromuscular dysplasia. I think that's very helpful because obviously for all the people with hypertension in the country, it's probably not reasonable to think about ultrasound or CT screening of all of those patients. So a little bit of a lead on who might be at risk with a stethoscope as a helper probably is useful. If there's no brewery, what raises your suspicion for looking at the renal arteries, for example, in a patient with hypertension? You mentioned youth or younger patients. Anything else? Well, I think anybody below the age of 35 who has high blood pressure without some other clear-cut reason should be have the renal arteries investigated. But I would use the same criteria as we would use for atherosclerotic renal artery disease. For example, if you can't control the blood pressure with a good triple drug regimen with at least one drug being a diuretic, I would look at the renal arteries in those conditions. Anybody who develops malignant or resistant hypertension, I would look at the renal arteries under those conditions. And anybody who has unexplained chronic kidney disease or acute kidney disease, I'd look at the renal arteries. I'd investigate the carotid arteries in anyone who you hear a brewery. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Heart Matters on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. I'm your host, Dr. Alfred Bobet. Our guest is Dr. Jeffrey Olin, who's the professor of medicine and cardiology at the Mount Sinai School of Medicine and the Director of Vascular Medicine the Zena and Michael Wiener Cardiovascular Institute and the Marie Josie and Henry Kravitz Center for Cardiovascular Health at the Mount Sinai Medical Center in New York City. We're discussing fibromuscular dysplasia, a condition of arteries that may be much more common than we originally thought. Let's move on and talk about therapeutic strategies for fibromuscular dysplasia. I know there's been a fair amount of controversy about whether angioplasty or PCI of the renal artery is really valuable in reducing hypertension in patients with renal artery stenosis, for example. Tell us a little bit about what your approach to therapy is with these patients. Yeah, I think that controversy in the renal arteries applies entirely to atherosclerotic renal artery disease. So I don't think there's much controversy when it comes to fibromuscular dysplasia. For example, 
If you make a diagnosis of fibromuscular dysplasia shortly after the high blood pressure has started, you have a very, very high likelihood of cure with angioplasty alone. Unlike atherosclerotic renal artery stenosis where you need to put a stent in, in fibromuscular dysplasia you rarely need to put a stent in because balloon angioplasty alone is very effective in disrupting the multiple webs that occur. So I would say that the treatment of choice in a person who has new onset high blood pressure, secondary to fibromuscular dysplasia, is balloon angioplasty. We empirically start everyone on an antiplatelet agent, usually aspirin, 81 milligrams a day, because there are these multiple webs that occur in an artery, and it makes intuitive sense that platelet fibrin thrombi can accumulate on these webs. For the carotid arteries, it's a different story. We also do balloon angioplasty on the carotid arteries, but really the indications for that are a hemispheric TIA or stroke or a dissection of the artery would be an indication for a percutaneous intervention. Okay. Have the vascular surgeons been able to deal with the carotid arteries, for example? I mean, this is much different than doing a surgical atherectomy in a coronary artery. How do the surgeons deal with fibromuscular dysplasia of the carotids? They deal with it the same way with balloon angioplasty. The older method of dealing with it was an open, graduated intraluminal dilatation. So surgical endarterectomy for this was never really an option because this occurs fairly high up in the carotid artery they would do a balloon angioplasty as well. There's one other point about carotid FMD that our listeners should be aware of, that if you have carotid artery FMD, you have about a 10 to 15% chance of having an intracranial aneurysm. So it's very, very important to look intracranially, usually with an MRA, to make sure that you don't have an aneurysm. Because if an aneurysm is there, it needs to be taken care of if it's a certain size. Where should we go with research in FMD, trying to understand its cause and detection? Well, this has been a particular area of interest of mine. There's no funding available for diseases like FMD. The National Institutes of Health are not going to fund a disease they perceive as rare. There's no industry that has any interest in a condition like this. So all of the funding that we've had thus far has been through the Fibromuscular Dysplasia Society of America, which is made up of a group of individuals who have FMD. So they have funded an international registry for FMD, which we started several months ago. And that's the initial approach to research, where instead of having studies with 10 or 15 or 30 patients, we'll have studies with thousands of patients now, similar to like the aortic dissection or pulmonary embolism registries. And hopefully this will be a jumping point so we can get additional funding where we can really start to do some genetic studies and genetic testing in these individuals. There are apparently very few simple signs and symptoms that one would pick up that would point to FMD, but tell us a little bit about your experience on how patients present and how one might get a clue that there might be FMD relating to either a carotid or a renal artery. Well, we already talked about patients who present with high blood pressure, and that's a strong clue for underlying renal artery disease. But there's a whole host of other symptoms that patients have, most commonly to carotid or vertebral artery FMD. For example, a very, very common symptom is an abnormal either heartbeat in the ear or an abnormal swishing or swishing sound in the ear. And patients rarely will come to you and tell you that they have this, but if you specifically ask them, 
many, many patients with carotid FMD hear this noise in their ear, which in some patients, it, it really is quite disturbing to them. They also have a whole host of non-specific symptoms, such as dizziness, lightheadedness, a feeling of decreased mentation, a feeling of anxiety that they don't know why they have it. So I think anybody who presents with those things, a very careful physical exam and history needs to be taken to make sure that you're not missing something such as FMD. If you do order a carotid ultrasound on these individuals, then you need to make sure that the laboratory looks in the mid and distal part of the carotid artery because if you look proximally, that's where atherosclerosis occurs, but you're going to totally miss FMD. And we just saw a patient very much like this the other day where an ultrasound was done, it was read as normal, whereas distally there were very severe turbulence and velocity shifts. So the clue here would be a younger person who is evidencing some kind of symptoms of reduced cerebral blood flow You're absolutely right, because when we send a patient to the ultrasound lab for carotid analysis, it's almost invariably a patient with suspected atherosclerotic disease. So it seems to me that the people in the lab, as you mentioned, need to be very carefully briefed on what we're looking for if it's particularly a younger person that requires examination of the distal carotids as well. I agree with everything that you said, but one of the things that we're learning now with imaging such as CT and MR is that there's a lot of FMD that's now being diagnosed in older individuals. It would have totally been missed before because it's diagnosed incidentally associated with various imaging tests. So we see in our radiology department here somewhere between one and three patients a month who have a CT or an MR for some other reason and FMD is diagnosed. Now, whether that's important or not is another question, but it does give you a clue that it's more common than you think it is. Going back to the kidney, is there a a long-term consequence of FMD on the kidney if it's not detected? We didn't really talk about this, but there are several different types of FMD. So everything pretty much that we've been talking about has been medial fibroplasia, the so-called string of beads that most people are familiar with. And medial fibroplasia rarely progresses in the kidney. It rarely causes chronic kidney disease. But there are several other types that do. Intimal fibroplasia and perimedial fibroplasia can cause chronic kidney disease, and those types are also more commonly associated with dissection of the renal artery and associated renal infarction. So it really depends on what type of fibromuscular dysplasia one has. I think this is a very interesting and important topic and apparently something that we're going to learn more about as we get better imaging techniques on the carotid and renal arteries. We've been talking with Dr. Jeffrey Olin about the diagnosis and treatment of fibromuscular dysplasia, a condition that may affect up to 10 million American patients. Thanks again for being our guest. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Heart Matters on ReachMD, the channel for medical professionals. For more information on this week's show or to download a podcast of this segment, please visit us at ReachMD.com. Thank you for listening.